I just had a big dinner party and uh, I was giving away some copies of the book. So tell me about the last time you had sex. And some people were saying, well, that means I have to remember the last time I had sex. Are you ready? Are you shitty down? Shine on Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards. You name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Top divorce stories. Shine on Podcast. Shine on Podcast. The Shine on Podcast 2022. It's episode 53 of the Shine on Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. The finale of season two is here. And do we have an episode for you? We kick it off with a docket and a look around the world of divorce. And then I sit down with our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine on Podcast, Ian Kerner. Ian is a therapist, a sex and relationship specialist, and a New York Times bestselling author, Infidelity and Divorce. Ian's two bestselling books, The Importance of Sex and Relationships, and Is the Lack of Intimacy the Number One Reason Couples Call It Quits and End Up in My Office. Producer Dave, I'm fired up for today's episode, the last episode of 2022, and what a year it's been for the Shine On Podcast. It has been. Numbers of listeners continue to grow, Evan, as I try to update you. Shine On Nation grows, and the show marches on. And Dave, you talk about Shine On Nation. You talk about the show marching on. We start season three of the podcast Tuesday, January 4th. We're going to have new segments, more incredible guests, more of my take, and even a deeper look as to what's happening in the world of divorce. Yes, the docket will be back for season three. And listeners, you wanted more producer Dave. You're going to get <laughs> more producer Dave for season three. I am absolutely buzzing about next season. So buckle up. It's going to be a great season three of the Shine Up podcast. And with that, producer Dave, take it away for the final docket, 2022. And now let's see what's on the docket. Evan, item one comes to us from marketwatch.com. Item one. It's got one of the longest headlines of any article I've ever seen. And the head, if I just read the headline, you'll get the whole point of the thing. It says, I met my wife in 2019 and we married in 2020. I put her name on the deed of my $998,000 California home. Now I want a divorce. What can I do? What do you think? What can he do? If anything. Dave, let me ask the obvious question. Yeah. What the hell was this guy thinking? <laughs> Adding his wife to the deed on a separate property home purchased three years before they were married. Yeah. And let me ask the second obvious question. What was this guy thinking not having a prenuptial mm -hmm. agreement? Look, if he stopped for a moment and thought about just one, I'm not even saying two. If he just thought about one of these questions, it would have saved him a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of heartache, and a hell of a lot of money. And look, as the article talks about, the domestic relations laws of every state are different. The writers from California, where the laws are different than in New York, where I practice. But I see cases like this all the time, where people don't have prenups who should have prenups and who do silly and idiotic things like add their spouse's name to their premarital home. Mm -hmm. This is why cases get litigated, especially in New York, because New York, 
unlike other states, it's not an automatic 50-50 state. I mean, this is a litigator's dream. One side arguing it was a gift by adding the spouse's name and all the equity should be split 50-50. The other side claiming a separate property credit or that it was put into both names as a matter of convenience. But Dave, I mean, is this guy as off as I'm making him out no, to be? Or, I'm, you know, I'm what, what was this guy thinking? Yeah, you may know better than I, but I'm trying to come up with any motivation he would have had for proactively putting his wife's name on the lease. I imagine it was just a gesture or honey, I want you to show your loyalty to me because it, it's not as if he gets any, I don't think any tax benefits or anything like that. No, it, you know what, you know what it is? Yeah. Nothing says I'm in love. <laughs> I'm in a committed relationship that adding your spouse's name to the deed <laughs> only to find out two years later, yep. you're, you're getting divorced. Nothing says disaster. Like what happens next? Item two comes to us from triblive.com. It's from North Huntington, Pennsylvania. Item two. The headline reads, corporate executive pleads guilty to forging fake divorce papers to keep up affair. The corporate executive pleaded guilty for forging a judge's name on a fake court record as part of a plot police said was designed to convince his lover to continue an extramarital affair. Kind of a lot to unpack there. What did you think of this one, Evan? Dave, we go from one disaster to kick off the docket to a second disaster. I mean, I'm wondering what kind of mood were you in when you put together these docket topics? But look, Dave, I got asked the other day, Evan, you must see it all. Does anything at this point in your career, do you get surprised? Mm. And the answer is no. And then I read this. Now, look, I can't fully say this surprises me because I have seen people that do absolutely nonsensical, idiotic, illogical, and inexplainable things you could imagine. But this, this producer, Dave, <laughs> this takes the cake. This guy faked his divorce. Faked the divorce. I mean, that, that's right. For anyone who's listening, scratching their head or saying, did I just hear him say that? <laughs> this guy faked his divorce to keep up with an affair. Right. Let me break some news on the Shine Up podcast. <laughs> if you want to actually get divorced legally, you can. You can get divorced. You don't actually have to fake your divorce. It's not that hard to start the process. And sure, there's a backlog. It's going to take some time. You're going to spend some money. It's not easy. You'll get a signed judgment of divorce that's actually real. You don't need to fake it. You don't need to forge the judge's signature like this guy did. Mm. Now, look, if you want to do this, to keep sleeping with your coworker so she doesn't end things, you could actually get divorced. But Dave, let me ask you this. Was not the most troubling thing about this piece, this article, not the faking of the divorce papers, mm. but the fact that this guy chose to fake an actual divorce judgment yeah. for someone who is threatening, threatening mm. to mm. cut it, cut him off, right. to end things, call it quits, unless she received and looked at an actual divorce judgment. What does it say about her? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, I'm even trying to get into the mind, the sinister mind of this guy or the desperate mind of this guy. Maybe that's a better word. But if I were to fake a divorce, I don't think I would go through the lengths to forge a judge's signature. <laughs> there, there are other things you could do short of that. And this, this guy paid the penalty, but you're right. What a, what a horrible situation. I mean, 
you you've got to, if you're in an extramarital affair, let's face it, it happens. You hear about it all the time, Evan. A lot of the people you deal with. Sometimes it's the way a marriage breaks up. But let's ha- look in the mirror and look at what you're doing here. Th- that's I just can't imagine that the guy couldn't have one moment of self-reflection to say, if I have to go to these lengths, then why am I still married, right? Well, Dave, let me let me take you some further. I mean, look at how this ended. The guy got fined. He's clearly not still seeing the person that he was seeing because he couldn't actually show the sign judgment of divorce. And now he's probably going to end up getting divorced the right way. I mean, what, you talk about right. a total lose-lose. Yeah. I'm not sure there's a bigger he, lose-lose than this. Which he didn't want to do. He didn't want to get divorced. We know that. That's that's why he went through the ruse. And he is like the, is it an Aesop's fable of the dog who sees the reflection in the river below and he sees a dog with another bone? He barks so he could get have both bones and he ends up with zero bones. That's what this Dave, guy Dave, there's, there's, as the line goes, there's some things you just can't make up. <laughs> that's right. Item three. Third docket and the one I'm looking forward to, Evan. And I think we have to alert our listeners that we may talk about some spoilers in the television show White Lotus, which just wrapped, which recently wrapped up the season two finale. And it did have to do with divorce. It did have to do with certain an impending divorce of one of the main characters. Headline in Slate.com reads, The White Lotus's most tragic death was that, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the season two of White Lotus, then fast forward about seven minutes. White Lotus's most tragic death was actually a triumph. So I take it you, you watched. Huge fan of the White Lotus. And yeah. Dave, you want to talk about finales. We can talk about the Shine Up podcast finale all you want. <laughs> the finale of the yeah. White Lotus. Love it. I love I loved the it White too. Lotus. Yeah. Season one was great. I would tell you season two was even better, though I missed some of the characters yeah. from season one. That finale creator, Mike White, mm. he nailed it. And if you're thinking to yourself, what the hell does the White Lotus have to do with the podcast? Let me tell you. First, I absolutely love the show. Second, prenups. Look, Tanya, played <laughs> by right. the brilliant yep. Ta- Tanya, who's played by the brilliant Jennifer Coolidge, who, Dave, I said brilliant. She is as good as it gets. She's terrific. Look, she's great. She had a prenuptial agreement with her husband, Greg, and the article references whether Greg was setting Tanya up to have an affair so she would forfeit money and part of her fortune to him in the divorce, given that the prenup gave Greg absolutely nothing. And the only way Greg would get anything under the one-sided protective prenup, totally, and understandably in Tanya's favor, is if she dies. So how real is this prenup discussion? It is 100% real. Look, as we've talked about, people look to protect their fortune, their assets, their business, and prenups can be structured in all different ways, with formulas, creative approaches. With that said, in a state like New York, where title doesn't control, and that means really how the money earned during a marriage and how it's titled is not relevant. People often structure prenups one of two ways. First, you can track the law, protect premarital assets, and anything you earn or acquire during the marriage is going to be marital, subject to division. The other option is title controls, which changes the default under New York law, which protects not only premarital assets, but money, assets, property, and business earned or acquired during the marriage that's titled in an individual name. So the prenup that we see in the White Lotus appears to be a titles control prenup because it gives Tanya everything and looks to protect her fortune. And I've been asked, Evan, 
What do you think of lifestyle clauses, infidelity clauses, penalty clauses? I don't like them. I don't recommend it. And I think it opens up the agreement to all sorts of potential challenges, public policy issues down the road. But look, I give Greg and his co-conspirators <laughs> some credit. They brilliantly tried to take Tanya down, given the prenup and given that Greg would walk away with nothing. Well, that's what we presume. I guess we never actually got confirmation. The White Lotus is wrapped in a lot of mystery, but I guess that is what we are to suspect. We don't know if everybody on the boat was in on it, right? But yeah, it was this scheme. And what a great job by Jennifer Coolidge during that horrifying moment when she's on the phone with her assistant and she realizes what's afoot, right? She realizes that the only way... Now, but let me ask you if... Well, I suppose if it could be proven that that the conspirators were in on the murder, then Greg wouldn't collect, right? If if you could prove that he was in on it, right? That he engineered this, correct? But he had an absolutely but, he, right. but but according to the plot of the show, he had an alibi. That's why he wasn't in Sicily at the time, right? So no, that's exa yeah. exactly right. But let me ask you about the White Lotus. Do you have a favorite character, or did you did you like them all? I'm a big Jennifer Coolidge fan. I forget if I mentioned this on the pod in the past. Probably not, but I met her once getting off a train at Route 128 Station in Massachusetts. She's a Boston person, and she was delightful and funny, and I love her. But I think Aubrey Plaza stole the, stole the show in this season. I think she's emerging as, I mean, very cringeworthy. A lot of the conversations between her and her husband and when he accused her of lying, I really felt like she was lying. I felt that that was great acting. Now we still don't know if she was actually lying. We can go into the whole thing. How about you? How about you? Did you have, did you have a favorite? I have to tell you, I don't have one particular favorite. Yeah. They were all great. I love the characters in season one. I equally love the characters on season two. And all I want to all I want to know, Dave. Yeah. When season three? Yeah, that it has been green lighted for season three, as I understand it. So, Mike White is is not is not stopping anytime soon. And I'm not talking about the Mike White that plays quarterback in your city. Different Mike White. And thank God for that. We are up to the portion of the episode where Evan gives his thoughts on the issues of the day. Kelly Clarkson on splitting holidays with the kids after the divorce. That's the topic of this week's Shine On Spotlight. The Shine On Spotlight. Dave, it's holiday time, so let's shine a spotlight on the holidays. And Kelly Clarkson helps us do that on today's episode. Clarkson's been open and candid about her divorce experience, the ups, the downs, the challenges, and what the process was like for her. And Dave, as we've talked about before in the podcast, the holidays are stressful. Holidays are hard. Holidays can be lonely when, for the first time, you're spending them without your children. Clarkson has a brilliant quote. Single parenting is a big adjustment. And she is 100% right. She nails it. We have had people share their stories on the podcast of what it's like for them around the holidays, especially the first holidays Without the kids, I've given you my take on what I see with my clients and tips for avoiding litigating over the holidays. But then Clarkson has an even better quote when describing the holidays. At first, it's weird. And then you're like, okay, I can do things. It's kind of incredible. You do get a little me time. So Dave, let me throw the ball to you. Can anything have prepared you for single parenting? And can you relate to Clarkson's last quote about changing the mindset, the perspective from one of not spending time with the children each and every holiday to thinking, you know what, a little me time is a pretty damn good thing. Yeah, 
it probably won't come at the first holiday season and probably not the second holiday season. It is adjustment. It is, I've told you before, I think due to my ex-wife being a very reasonable, kind person, even I've had it better than most, but nevertheless, holidays are sad. They're sad. You, you, you're, you've got traditions. You're always, you're always at, you know, Uncle Frank's house or whatever. Well, now Uncle Frank's, is he, that, that was actually your ex-wife's Uncle Frank. So you're not going to be there and you got to get used to that. And the, the kids, we always thought should be of the, the most import and just to make things feel normal for them. I, I did in time eventually come around to what Clark, Kelly Clarkson's talking about. And that is that it is nice to have at least a day or two during the holiday season w- when you're alone and away from the chaos. If that's Christmas day, then sure. You're going to be a little sad about it, but you know, the, as long as you figure out ways to show your kids that you love them in the same way and holidays are always going to be fun. They're just going to be a little different. Sometimes that's the best you can do. Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine Out Podcast is Ian Kerner. Ian is a licensed psychotherapist and nationally recognized sex therapist who works with individuals and couples. He is the New York Times bestselling author of She Comes First, as well as the recently published So Tell Me About the Last Time You Had Sex. He is the co-founder and co-director of the Sex Therapy Program at the Institute for Contemporary Psychotherapy. Ian, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Hey, Evan, I'm happy to be here. And Ian, we're going to talk all about sex, marriage, divorce, intimacy, and relationships. And there's absolutely no one better to have on to do that than yourself. So to start, tell us, how does your approach with patients differ from that of a typical therapist? Okay, well, Evan, one thing is that I really do specialize in sexuality. And a lot of couples therapists are really not adequately trained in sex therapy. And so I get a lot of referrals from other therapists because sex is obviously relational. It's very connected to the importance of a relationship. But when we're really looking at the kinds of sexual issues that come up, let's say around desire discrepancy, arousal issues like erectile unpredictability, orgasm issues, just getting absorbed in a sexual event, trauma, having out of control sexual behaviors, most couples therapists really aren't trained to handle that in the room. And a lot of people get uncomfortable talking about sex, therapists included. So I think first and foremost, I'm really making a space for a couple's, for lack of a better word, for their sexual selves to come into the room and really get the spotlight in the way that they probably haven't, right? Because most couples can be lying in bed next to each other and be a million miles apart when it comes to a sexual problem. And you're exactly right. And let me ask you about sexual wellness, because historically it's been something of a taboo topic that people have been reticent to discuss. Tell us whether and how that dynamic has changed over the years. Well, I mean, I think that sexual wellness today really goes hand in hand with relational wellness, right? There used to be this idea like, oh, well, to have a, to have a great sex life, you have to have this kind of a quality relationship. And if we can get your relationship to this quality, the sex will follow. Well, A, that's not true. And B, a lot of studies are showing that couples who have sex once a week 
have higher levels of relationship positivity than couples who don't. So couples who have sex two, three, four, five, six times a week, they don't necessarily have higher levels of relationship positivity. A couples who have sex less than once a week have significantly less, significantly lower levels of relationship positivity. And so I think when we're just talking about valuing our relationships, our family systems, how much depends on our couplehood to survive and thrive, sexual wellness is an essential part of relationship wellness. And it's one that often falls to the, to the wayside or into the background. But I think more and more, um, people are really valuing sexuality and they're, they're advocating for their pleasure and they're bringing their unique erotic personalities and they're speaking up on behalf of themselves. And so I think sexual wellness is really important. It's also a big part of physical wellness as well and maintaining stress levels and just keeping the blood flowing and, and maintaining the kind of body that allows you to have positive, healthy, functioning sex. And this is a moment in history where people are openly discussing gender identity more than ever. Tell us about what that feels like to play a role in this phenomenon. Well, I think a lot of, in, in my work, I work, I've worked historically with a lot of people who have, let's just say, erotic conflicts, right? In some ways, the, uh, the sex that they're having does not authentically align with how they feel inside regarding their orientation. And, and more and more that's happening with gender as well. So I am frequently working with couples in which one or both partners are non-binary or gender fluid. I'm often working with teens who are in a process of discovery or discovery around gender. And I, and I think we can just say that things are, are more fluid. We are less boxed in. We are becoming more experimental, more playful. The trend that I see in my practice, even more than sort of non-binary identities, is the emergence of, of, of non-monogamy within traditionally focused couples. But in general, I think what's happening is there's just an overall sex positivity and a sense of the importance of sex that's really coming into the room. Ian, you're in New York City. I'm in New York City. Tell everyone what it's like to be a therapist in New York City, a place that's known for creating anxiety. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's bustling, it's busy. During the COVID years, those two years or so, I thought I'd really get a break, right? Because everybody always says like, I'm too tired to have sex, I'm too busy to have sex, I'm commuting, I can't have sex. So suddenly all of the obstacles and distractions that were getting in the way I thought were gonna be eliminated. I seriously thought I'd be able to like, really take a, a major break. But instead, I mean, my email just lit up, right? Because people were living on top of each other. They weren't showering. They were staying in their pajamas all day. They were not getting out and exposing themselves to the world. So some ways, what I experienced in New York, I think is just a microcosm around what was happening in the, around the country. I think what's amazing about New York, though, is just the, the diversity of patients and, and couples that I see. I mean, my practice is probably 60% couples, 40% individuals, but I would say it's 50-50 in terms of gender identity and sexual orientation. And so I'm working with gay couples, lesbian couples, trans individuals, and that kind of 
diversity is really exciting and what keeps the work really interesting. Ian, you mentioned your inbox was flooded. My inbox as a divorce attorney was flooded as well. And look, people were living together, the stress, the anxiety, couples were living together as opposed to separating. So let me ask you about the pandemic since you mentioned it. Are couples having more or less sex? Is intimacy higher or lower during the pandemic? And now that we're on the other side of it. Well, I worked with a lot of single people who really had to isolate and really got stuck and really were in kind of sexless lives, except for what they were able to create online. I also worked with a lot of couples who were dating someone and they said like, hey, let's move in together. Let's get a dog and let's buy a house somewhere. And now they're kind of unwinding the aftermath of that. I, I would say in general, people were having less sex during COVID. And, and that just talks about how sex is really a function of our overall health and our ability to get out there in the world and, and be validated by external stimuli. I found that people's sex lives were really shutting down. There was also a lot of depression and anxiety in the air. Those kinds of issues can really inhibit desire, those kinds of mood dis disorders like anxiety and just generalized depression. And Ian, as a sex therapist, how do you get patients to open up about such delicate topics? Well, first of all, Evan, I'm, I, I live in, we live in an age where therapists don't just have to be wearing white jackets and be behind sort of like be a blank slate. So I do in my own books, I'd self-disclose about my own issues with my own, my own sexual journey. And I think that makes me relatable and, and I'm, I'm, I'm out there with my own vulnerabilities. I'd say that's first and foremost. When you're working with a couple or an individual, and is there a moment, or I guess, how do you know that you've made a breakthrough with the patient, given the type of work that you specialize in? Well, Evan, I have a process when I'm working specifically with sex therapy is I'll learn everything I can about the problem that a couple is experiencing. Let's say it's a desire discrepancy issue and I'll walk around it. I'll look at it through a physical lens, through a psychological lens, through a, a relational lens. And then I'll ask them a simple question. I'll ask them to tell me about the last time they had sex, which is also the title of my new book, and that's not so new anymore. And basically the premise is that every sexual event tells a story and has a beginning, a middle, and an end from who initiated and how sex got going to how they built arousal to which behaviors they engaged in, which behaviors didn't they engage in, who had orgasms, who didn't, did the sex leave them connected and feeling positive? Did it leave them feeling separated and apart? And I call that the sex script. And basically with a couple, we are rewriting the sex script from session to session. I usually see couples every two to three weeks for sex therapy, not every week because I give them homework in between. And I'm always addressing the next part of the sex script that needs to be edited, that needs to be rewritten. So success for me is when couples are able to have a sexual event in which there's mutual pleasure, in which they're both able to be absorbed in, and when we've effectively kind of uh, rewritten the sex script. Ian, you mentioned your book, so tell me about the last time you had sex. So let's go there. What kind of reaction did you get from people 
on the title of the book. Well, I didn't quite get the same reaction that I got from my first book, She Comes First. <laughs> you wrote that book so many years ago. It's over 20 years ago, and I still can't. I mean, it's, it's a gift because it's the gift that keeps on giving. Sure. That that, that seems to be the greatest title I'll ever create. Fantastic. <laughs> the, the next one is not that far behind. So Yes. But no, people, people are really intrigued. I mean, I just, it's funny. I just had a big dinner party and... Uh, I was giving away some copies of the book. And so tell me about the last time you had sex. And some people were saying, well, that means I have to remember the last time I had sex. <laughs> or, or me and my partner, we have to agree on the last time we had sex. That's I was going to say, you mentioned a dinner party. You, the title of your book has to be a fantastic dinner party conversation because you're right. It sparks, it sparks so many different memories or conversations. And yeah, no, as long as there's some wide involved or after other than the title of the book, not much else has to be discussed. Ian, so what inspired you to write the book? So tell me about the last time you had sex really just came out of uh, 10 years, the last 10 years of working with patients, teaching. I, t I train sex therapists. I supervise sex therapists. And so I'm always developing curriculum and developing ways to help therapists communicate with patients. And as a New York state therapist, I'm licensed to work here in New York, but I've had the privilege to do things that have given me more of an international profile and a broader national profile. So this was really, this is the book where if you want to do sex therapy at home, or if you, if you want it to feel like you're in my office working through a sexual problem, both getting on the other side of it, talking about it, expanding your sexual horizons. I would say this is the book to do that. So it's a book that I'm very proud of. And frankly, it just came out of working with of individuals and couples. What is your philosophy on the importance of sex in a relationship? So it's very funny, Evan. I just wrote an article for CNN that was in incredibly controversial. And it was about what is the importance, not so much just of sex, but of sexual attraction when you're picking a partner, because it's really interesting. I'm working these days. I have a lot of like heterosexual couples, young couples in their late 20s, early 30s. They're coming in in desireless relationships or sexless relationships. They're wondering what's going on. Very often it's the guy who's saying he's lacking in desire and he's sort of saying, oh, I don't know, maybe it's stress or maybe it's just anxiety, too much work, my testosterone levels. And then I'll meet individually with that guy who is saying he doesn't have desire and he'll often tell me that the real problem, which he didn't bring into the room when his partner was there, is that when it came to picking a lifetime partner, sex wasn't on the list of qualities he was looking for, sexual attraction. A lot of guys are coming in with this belief that, hey, once I'm married, you stop having sex anyway. So why should I based <laughs> on sexual attraction? Or I had so much crazy hot sex and you can't have that crazy hot attraction and love in the same relationship. So they're just coming in with, or when it comes to picking a partner, you got to pick your best friend or you got to pick someone who has a great career or a great family or we travel together. I actually think that you need to pick based on sexual attraction. It's not the only quality that matters, but it really is important. I mean, sex is what makes you more than just roommates, right? If you're not having sex, you're in a platonic relationship. 
And so I really think prioritizing that attraction, prioritizing that chemistry, and then being able to cultivate it over the long term, right? Just because you're married for 10 or 20 years doesn't mean you stop having sex, but you have to continue to cultivate that attraction and that connection. I, I mean, you mentioned, I think it's crucial. And you mentioned the CNN article and, and sort of the feedback that, that you got. So tell us about that. Was it on the positive side and perhaps the not said positive I, feedback? I think it was more on the controversial side. Yeah. A lot of people saying that sexual attraction isn't an important quality to pick in a lifetime partner. I was also saying that if you don't have it there, if it wasn't there in the beginning of a relationship, you can't recreate something that wasn't there in the first place. And so a lot of people also read and said it can emerge and you can create it over the long term. So I, if anything, I think I got a lot of people being with me and disagreeing with the idea that sexual attraction is something that you need to prioritize in picking a monogamous partner. Listen, Evan, I'm also dealing with couples who are getting divorced over sex, infidelity, struggling to maybe open up their relationship. So I'm going to continue to say sex is really important. Well, and I was going to, I was going to ask you because you're, you're venturing over to my, my world in divorce. So how often is a lack of intimacy a reason that couples call it quits and get divorced? I think it's increasingly a much bigger reason. I mean, I'd be curious to hear about your own practice, but you sort of talked about the importance of sex to people and more and more people are not standing for sexless relationships or relationships where there isn't pleasure or relationships where they're not growing sexually. I think people think of this as, as a requirement. I mean, it's, it's part of being alive, our sense of eros and our sense of sexuality. So I think it's a, it, it's a really big reason, a really major reason why couples are coming. And now some, most couples wait far too long, right? Some of the couples that I've come in with that are, that come in that are on the verge of divorce or they've been on the verge of infidelity or on the verge of opening their marriage. So they've waited like 10 years too long. It's kind of like going to the dentist. You don't go until like, unless you're going for a checkup, you don't go unless you're really in pain. You know? I'm going to say, whether it's your office or my office, I mean, it's, it's, it's two offices people would rather not step foot in. But no, I'm seeing exactly that as well. Couples are waiting far too long to address their marital issues, the marital problems, to come into my office to talk through it. And then, look, no one ever sits across from me and says they want a divorce. And oh, by the way, we're in a perfectly wonderful sexual relationship. I've never heard that in 15 years of practice. And so sex or a lack of sex and infidelity is often one of the number one things that I hear as a divorce attorney from people in terms of their dissatisfaction or their frustration in their marriage. But, but people, you're right, people have been living that way for several, several years. Yeah. Well, I think that there, for a long time, there was a belief that like sex wasn't a reason to separate or sex wasn't a reason to get divorced. It wasn't important enough. You could live without it. You could sacrifice that for the well-being of the kids. And I, I, I don't think people are willing to sacrifice anymore. They're realizing that their sexuality is really a primary way of feeling alive. Ian, you mentioned that you work with both couples and individuals. Do you find it easier for people to open up when they're working with you one-on-one -on -one about 
sex about intimacy where their partner is not present? Yeah. Very often, especially if there's something they're uncomfortable saying to their partner or there's some kind of a secret. But I, I think it goes back more to Evan, less an individual or a couple and more how comfortable is someone talking about sex overall? How are they modeled to talk about sex, right? Like most of us did not grow up in sex positive homes, right? We either grew up in sex negative homes where there was a lot of uh, shame and, and guilt, and or we grew up in sex avoidant homes where it just wasn't discussed at all, which was kind of like the home that I grew up in. So if you grow up in an environment where a primary topic in, in life is, is avoided, you're not learning how to talk about that topic in the way that you're learning how to talk about other difficult topics. So to me, the differentiator or the variable isn't necessarily an individual or a couple, because I could be sitting with an individual who's completely tongue-tied and, and, can't, and can't even stammer the words out. And I can be with a couple who are totally comfortable talking about sex and vibrators and this and that. So I think it really comes back to um, how someone was sort of modeled and how they've experienced communicating about sex during their lives. Very often you can have a couple where one partner is much more comfortable talking about sex than the other partner in the room. Is it, does that make it easier for the other person to open up or does it pose a challenge? I think whenever two people aren't talking, it poses a challenge. And so I've gotten, just like you, Evan, I'm sure I've gotten like very good at my job, right? I'm sure you're sitting with a couple sometimes and one partner isn't doing that much of the talking. I've gotten very good at, at empathizing, understanding probably what they're experiencing and doing what I call, it's called lending them a voice, basically trying to help give them the words that they're having a, a problem finding. And I find that if I do that effectively, by the end of the first session, I can get almost anybody talking about sex. It's funny. Sometimes I'm training sex therapists and they can't talk about sex. I'm like, <laughs> if you can't say the word clitoris or penis without blushing or looking down, <laughs> specialization. Exactly right. Ian, let me ask you, is, what's the bigger problem in marriages? Is it infidelity? or a lack of intimacy, or do you find one sort of blends into the other? I would say, Evan, the biggest issue that I deal with in my practice between couples is it's relationships where there's a discrepancy around desire, where one partner is much more interested in having sex than the other partner. And it's not, in heterosexual couples, you would think, oh, it's always the guy who's after having more sex, but uh, it's a flip of the coin. That is generally very often not the case, but I would say being in a, in a sexless relationship or being in a relationship where one partner feels pressured, like, oh my God, he's coming over. He's holding my hand. He's giving me a kiss on the cheek. Is this going to turn into a kiss on the lips and then turn into sex? Or another partner's feeling like, oh man, anytime I try and initiate anything, I'm just getting rejected. That creates vulnerability, and that's the vulnerability that can lead to both emotional infidelity and, and actual physical sexual infidelity. So I think you're right. I think the two do go sort of hand in hand. But yeah, sexuality can be a major source of vulnerability for a relationship when it's not happening. Ian, we've spoken about it. You've mentioned the words depression, anxiety. We talked about the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic. 
on people's sexual relationships, what impact is medication, whether it's for anxiety, depression, or for a whole host of other things, play a role in whether it's sexual desires or sexual intimacy between partners? Yeah, I mean, I think health overall plays a huge role, lifestyle, the extent to which you're sleeping and, and eating. Well, over the pandemic, I became a vegan and I lost about 45 pounds in my like my libido and my sexual function and stamina went way up. So I think overall health is really important, but there are a lot of medications that people are taking that have sexual side effects. I think the biggest class of medication would be SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, fluoxetine, Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, Paxil. Those come with significant effects or significant sexual side effects in men and women, it can inhibit desire. It can inhibit arousal, meaning that men won't be able to get erections. Women won't be able to lubricate. It can really delay or even eliminate orgasm. So these are, these are drugs that are being prescribed by the millions to people, and they do come with substantial sexual side effects. So I am often working with couples on, or an individual on how to have mental health or how to even stay on these medications, but still find their way to sexual function. Ian, how do couples know when it's time to give you a call, see a sex therapist so they can end up in your office instead of mine? Yeah. I mean, I love when couples are proactive. I love when couples say this isn't urgent yet, but there's something that we need to discuss or there's something we're noticing or some aspect of communication around sex that we want to address. And, and I love when it's not urgent because then we can really work on something. As I said earlier, I think most couples, most individuals are waiting far too long. So I would say when sex is something that you're starting to, to think about or worry about, or you're starting to really miss in a relationship or you're going to bed at night and you're just like watching Netflix and like, why aren't we, why aren't we touching? Why aren't we connecting? So I would encourage people to be as proactive as possible. The other thing I want to say, Evan, about sex therapy as opposed to traditional therapy or even couples therapy is I can work with couples sometimes just for two or three or four sessions and get them totally on the other side of something. I mean, if a couple comes in with willingness and a willingness to communicate and work on something, we are not talking about long-term th therapy. We're talking about a process that's very solutions-oriented where we can really move the needle quickly. Ian, I have to tell you, this was absolutely fantastic. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Tell all the listeners where they can pick up a copy of your two books and also read the fantastic articles and blogs and find out about everything that you're doing. Great. Well, hopefully you can go to your independent bookstore. And if any of my books aren't there, you can put them on order. We need to be preserving indie bookstores. Uh, they're disappearing. And I maintain a website that's pretty comprehensive where uh, people are reaching out to me. So I would just say going to iankerner.com. Thank you for having me on, Evan. I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Ian. Episode 53 of the Shine Up Podcast, the finale. The last episode of 2022, this was great. Featured Shine Up Podcast guest Ian Kerner, as good as it gets. And what a way to end the year. Producer Dave of the Boston Podcast Network, my guy, season two is in the books. And I know, Dave, you're buzzing about the upcoming season three. 
That's right. I feel like a rookie in training camp all over again, Evan, because season three is, is going to be some fresh, some new stuff. Still great guests, still great features, still a great pod. I can't wait. Nah, I'm excited, too, and I want to thank all the listeners. You can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, Apple, and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Follow the podcast and subscribe. Wishing everyone a happy and healthy new year. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you in 2023.